morning. God is good? And all the time? So glad that you chose to worship with us today. I'm going to invite you to find your way to Matthew chapter number 5. We are going to be in our week 2 of our series sermon on the mount. And before we get into our message today, I just want to say thank you to uh, to Nathan and to, and to Marty and all the, the, the praise team and all the volunteers. You know, uh, last Sunday was kind of crazy. If you were around here, you may have understood what was going on. You may, you may not even have noticed that anything was going on. But uh, I was, of course, in vacation, on vacation in Florida, and I got a, a message early in the morning. Uh, and, and Nathan had been planning, preparing, and praying to preach uh, for probably a couple months now. And uh, he woke up last Sunday morning uh, with fever and the chills. And, you know, a year and a half ago, you probably just kind of pushed through that. But, you know, under our certain circumstances now, you just kind of stay home. And so he called me and he's like, hey, I'm ready. I, I, can, I, can, I feel good enough to record the message in my living room this morning and upload it. And I'm like, uh, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm prepared. I want to, you know, when you, when you prepare that many hours, you just got to put something in your heart. You're like, I just got to get up and say it. And so I appreciate him preaching while he was sick from his living room. And then I appreciate all of the volunteers who made it happen last week. And so I'm thankful for them as Stefan was also sick and Marty kind of last minute filled in as well. And so I am thankful that we have a great staff. Amen. I'm also thankful we have a great group of volunteers. And so if you're, if you're not serving, let me challenge you to serve. Get plugged in somewhere. Uh, I, I love watching people serve because it, it's an opportunity for you to get to meet new people, to serve with someone, but also it's an opportunity for you to kind of exercise your faith. And, and we have all kinds of people and opportunities for you to serve. And you may not be aware, but most every one of our camera operators our high school students, and I'm thankful that Carlos, our student pastor, has gotten them serving in our church. And in fact, today, our uh, media team, the, the four that are up there making all the lights and sound and computer and everything happen, it's a family with a high school student and a junior high student and a mom and dad. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And so if you want to serve, let us know. We would love to. You, you can actually go on our website. There's a tab that says connect on the very bottom under connect is serve. You can sign up to serve, all right? So that was my plug for this morning, but I do want to say thank you to all those who are making things happen. It's a blessing that even when you're away and Satan throws a curveball, that the church still goes, doesn't it? God's word is not going to be stopped, is it? God is, is going to have his will accomplished. And in Matthew chapter 5, as Nathan introduced the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the greatest sermon ever preached, the greatest preacher to ever preach in Matthew 5 through 7 is, is Jesus, and he preaches what is now termed Sermon on the Mount. He didn't get up that day in front of all of the crowd and say, hey, my title of my message today is the Sermon on the Mount, okay? That's not how it happened. It's just what we have termed it later. And we see in Matthew chapter 4 kind of the context of it. It seems to me that as Jesus has just called the four disciples, and he has other followers, he has actually crowds, that you almost get this sense that really the, the main audience who Jesus is really speaking to is those four core followers. There were also other disciples that weren't quite all in yet. They were like following, they're still trying to think. I mean, when we think of that in, in terms that we use, it's like there's this, the crowd, 
It talks about in chapter 4 from all over. It would be religious people. It was people that were Jews and Gentiles. And so there's this crowd that have kind of gathered. There's this, what I would say then, a community. These are the ones that have been following Christ. They're kind of like, I I think I get it. I I think I want to sign up for this. I think I want to be a follower, not just a fan. And then there's the core that are the four disciples that have already been called and have accepted the call to be followers of Christ. And so that's his directive audience, is these followers of Jesus. And so as we kind of walk through this, and we can kind of apply that, that he's speaking to those who have made a decision to follow Jesus. Now, as Nathan mentioned last week, we are, we are pretty much screaming through like a 30,000-foot view of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to encourage you to join us this Wednesday we'll be on, uh, on Facebook Live uh, on the 18th, and we'll be back in person. But Nathan's going to spend a lot of time just kind of unpacking, getting to some of the details of the Sermon on the Mount. And so on Sunday morning, we're going to give you kind of this high view and quick overview, and then we'll dig a little deeper in on Wednesday night Bible study. But what we see in, in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is not really giving us the conduct required to be a Christian. What he is giving us is the characteristics of a Christian. Another way to say that is we often say that we are not working for salvation. We're working from salvation. We're not serving the Lord out of duty, but out of love. That we're not serving for the cross, but from the cross. And so what we see here is Jesus kind of understanding, unpacking, what is it, what does a follower of Christ look like? How should a follower of Christ live? And so we saw last week the, the Beatitudes, and, and then we stopped at verse number four. And I want to jump in this morning at verse 13. And we're gonna we're gonna scream through all these verses from 13 to verse 48 and kind of end with some application. So I would encourage you to, to fasten your seatbelts because we're gonna go through this quickly and then we'll spend some Wednesday nights. Uh, unpacking this. But in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. So like this declarative statement to followers of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And then it gives light to all who are in the house. So then he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. And so as we understand, I'm going to make just a few quick statements about this and then we're going to keep going, right? We could take a lot of time talking about this. But what he does see and what we do see is Jesus declares something about those who've made a decision to follow Jesus. That you're a salt of the earth. And salt, the most common use for it in this period of time was that it would be used to stop the decay, right? So the decay of meat, they didn't have refrigeration. That was like the number one, number priority use is it would just stop decay. Now let's think of that in terms as followers of Jesus, of the church. The church is to be the salt of the earth. We are supposed to stop decay. The problem I see is that too often the church has remained in the salt shaker. And what good is salt if it doesn't leave the salt shaker? That's why every Sunday morning when we leave, what do do we say? Church is not over. It's time to go be the church. So you're salt. So then we understand it is we should be salty. We should have an impact 
on the world. He also says, then you are to be light. And what does light do? But it shines, it dispels darkness. And so we, as the light of the world, are to be bright. This is really deep theology here. If your salt be salty, if your light be bright, and we understand what Jesus is saying, you are a follower of Jesus, go be salty, go be light. Have an impact on the world. All right, now let's keep reading. Verse number 17. Jesus again speaking. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Interesting that the rest of Christ's ministry, this is kind of the beginning of the ministry, that the religious people, this is what they said Jesus came to do, to abolish the law. And he right out of the gate says, I didn't come to abolish or destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And it's going to be important for us to understand that. It goes on to say, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, and one jot, one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, this is, I think, one of the most important verses as we unpack the rest of this text. Verse number 20. Jesus says, For I say unto you that unless... Your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You by no means enter to the kingdom of heaven. So the most religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who are committed to live up to all the standards of the law, and they've even added all kinds of other laws, and sometimes their misinterpretation of the law. But Jesus is saying, listen, here's the standard. If you want to get into heaven, you've got to be perfect. Uh oh. You gotta be perfect. That's what he says. We're gonna see at the end of this section of teaching in verse 48 that Jesus kind of doubles down on that. So I want you to think about this thought. This is the standard. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And if you want to get into heaven, you you gotta your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. You gotta be you gotta be perfect. And then he lays out for us this standard. What does perfection look like? So let's, let's unpack this. And again, we're, we're going to kind of scream through this pretty quick. But in verse 21, we, we're going to see six different statements as we unpack this. And these six different statements start with something similar to this. Jesus says, you have heard it said. And sometimes he's going to quote straight from the Ten Commandments. But I say unto you. Then he's going to say, you have heard it said. And sometimes he's going to say things that aren't in the Old Testament. He's saying what the religious people have, how they've misinterpreted. But he says, but I say unto you, every, all six times, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. At the close of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see this description of Jesus. It says, he taught, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, he taught as one who had, there's this key word, authority. So he's saying, you have heard it said, but now under my authority, I say unto you. And he's really claiming deity. This is the new commandment. All right, so let's, let's unpack these six statements. All right, so verse number 21, as, as Jesus speaks, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment, all right? So he just given one of the Ten Commandments. Verse 22. But I say unto you, 
Whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, or that would be what we maybe slang would be an airhead, or maybe a little severe would be idiot, you shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of the hell fire. Therefore, if you bring gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first to be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is raising the bar on the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. And what Jesus is trying to point out to us that we're going to see here is that they, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and all the religious people, they were, they were hoping that their religion was going to bring them to righteousness. And we're going to see that that's not the case. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said... The Tenth Commandment, you shall not murder, but I say unto you that even if you have anger toward your brother, really, you're a murderer. You have messed up. You're not perfect. And then we see this command here that we, as, as and again, we're thinking in religious, their, their religion was all about the outward appearance. What Jesus is wanting to get to in this sermon is that we, we, we want to get your heart Jesus is not so interested in the outward appearance as much as he is the heart. Because out of the heart flow the issues of life. And so it's, it's all directed to our heart, not to religiosity. Like you could come to the altar and everyone sees you, raise your hand and pray. And, and but Jesus is saying, but, but you have an offense to a brother. You need to go be reconciled. The word that Nathan used last, work, last week is we need to talk about peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. He's saying we should be instigators of reconciliation. So here's what he's saying. Pursue righteousness, not wrath. Now as we unpack these six things, I just, you know, as I was studying this a week or so ago, I really just felt led because Pastor Dave, as many of you know, this is his first Sunday to preach at his new church at Hopewell Baptist. And if you know Dave at all, you know he loves alliteration. And so I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor Dave today by having every word start with a W. Do you know alliteration's a lot harder than you think? All right, so just show, David's much smarter than me, but we don't, don't tell him I said that. All right, so pursue righteousness, not wrath. And so here's the standard. It's not about murder. Have you been angry towards someone? check, then you're not perfect. All right, let's keep going. It got, got really quiet all of a sudden. Verse number 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Again, just quoting the commandment. But I say to you, whoever looks to a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. And then he gives this, like, cut your eye out if it's going to keep you from heaven. And God, Jesus didn't really want us to do that, but he's wanting to point out to the degree that we should pursue righteousness. And so we see this standard here. It's like uh, murder. No, not, it's not about murder. It's about your heart. Have you even been angry with someone? Then you've messed up. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. And now it's not just about adultery. It's not just outward action of adultery. It's like my heart, have, 
Is there ever been lust in my heart? And if so, what Jesus said under his authority, well, then you've committed adultery in your heart. So have I ever been angry? Check. Have I lusted? Check. And what do we say? Verse 20 says, the standard to get in heaven is got to be perfect. And real quickly, two statements in, I'm, I'm guilty. Verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife with any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, uh, what I want to do this Wednesday night on the 11th, we're going we're gonna to spend time unpacking this. We could take a long time and talk about this, these two verses because the unfortunate reality in our world is that the, the truth is, statistics would say that whether you're a churchgoer or not a churchgoer, about 50% of marriages end divorce. And this is not God's intention. Even in this exemption that, that he mentions here about Moses, and Moses said, I'm going to give you an exemption for adultery because of the hardness of your heart. That wasn't God's plan. It's what God allowed, but it's not what he wants. And the reason that then Moses said to write a certificate of divorce was really more for protection of the women because the men were, let's use the scriptural word, raka. They were idiots. And Moses is trying to protect the women. And we're going to spend some time on the 11th, this Wednesday night, kind of unpacking that. But the statement here, pursue righteousness, not, again, here's where I'm struggling for, W, here's a wedding bliss. And what, what do I mean by that? Here, here's the lie of Satan in our culture and probably in every culture before. Is God is good, and so, so God, he, he wants you to be happy. I mean, God, God does want you to be happy, but that, that's not his ultimate goal for you. God wants you to be holy. And if you've been married very long, you know that not every day is like the wedding day. Not every day is Instagram worthy, is it? Uh, my wife and I, Joy, we celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary on the 31st of July. I mean, we got married super, super young, okay? And you could ask her, not every day being married to me would she describe as wedding bliss. Would you, you guys probably would agree to that, right? But the reality is we both stood in a church like this one and we made a covenant to God for better or worse, sickness and health, for richer or for poorer, until death do us part. And so what God wants us to pursue is holiness, not happiness. Because God knows if we do pursue holiness, a benefit is it's not just happiness, it's joy, the joy of the Lord. I am also thankful that we serve a God who forgives. And I'm thankful that, again, if, if we just play statistics that potentially half of the room this morning has been divorced. And I'm thankful that even in that, that God offers forgiveness, aren't you? That God doesn't say, oh, stamp, disqualified forever. That God gives mercy and God gives grace. But I want to spend some time Wednesday night kind of unpacking what is, 
What does God expect of us in marriage? And what does God really think of divorce? All right, so we'll, we'll see how tuned in you are Wednesday night. So let's move on. Verse number 33. Again, I, again you have heard it said to those of old, you should not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. All right, so number four, pursue righteousness, not wealth. All right, so what, what the religious people were doing is, you remember probably when you were a kid and you would make a promise to someone, and if you're real, you know, if, you, if you're kind of new to the game, you, you'd kind of put your hand behind your back and cross your fingers. You guys remember doing that? And said, ah, it doesn't count. Or if you got really smart, you're kind of like, oh, I'm just going to cross my legs a little bit. Look, I, I promise. And they're like, ha-ha, my legs were crossed. Am I the only one that did that? You guys are like looking at me like, please someone raise your hand and identify with me. All right, thank you. It's like, surely everyone cheated, right? And so what they were doing was they were saying, we're going to swear by the temple. And they were greedy and wanted wealth. And then when they would go back on their word, oh, we didn't swear on God's name. And they were using these loopholes. Okay. And so what we're after here is just honesty, pursue righteousness, not greed, not wealth. So, so far we were talking about lust. Have you ever been angry? Have you ever been greedy? Have you ever been selfish? Have you ever been self-centered? Check, 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 right? But if we're going to get into heaven, we have to be perfect. Well, let's continue on the next statement. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, oh, I skipped one, didn't I? Let's go back. Sorry. Who caught that? All right. Verse 38. Sorry for whoever's running the computer. They're like, where is he at? Verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. I have a funny story about that as a kid, but I'm not going to tell it. If you want to know, you can ask me. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him uh, have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And so what is this statement here? We want to pursue righteousness, not winning. So in other words, what, what Je- the heart of what Jesus is getting to is that the, the religious people were basically uh, wanting to take revenge. They were wanting also to um, retribution. And they wanted to use the law to, in their favor to not pursue reconciliation, but to pursue revenge and retaliation or retribution. And so what Jesus is saying here is, listen, as a follower of Jesus, it is God first, other second, yourself last. And how easy it is for me to to want to win at all costs. To want what I want, when I want it, because I want it, because I deserve it. 
And I want to pursue righteousness, not being first, not winning. All right, now let's get to the next one where I already started, right? You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor. Notice probably in your Bible that's either in all caps or that's italicized or in sync quotes because that is in the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor. Then it goes on to say, and hate your enemy. Nowhere in the scripture is it recommended for us to hate anyone. But the religious people had misinterpreted some things, and they were teaching this. And it almost gives this idea of exclusive, exclusiveness. Remember what I said about the salt that's in the shaker provides no purpose? And so it's like, we, we see this in church world, right? Where we want to just, it's us for no more. Because we have it figured out. We know how to check the boxes. And so they were teaching, well, yeah, love your neighbor, love those like you. But those who are not followers, those people, it's almost like the idea of Jonah when God called him to go to Nineveh. Jonah felt like he deserved mercy and grace, but those people, no, they didn't deserve that. So he goes on. Uh, let's look at verse number 47. And if you greet your brother only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors? Let, let's, let's read 46 too again. Let me skip over it. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do even the tax collectors also do that? In other words, what, what Jesus is saying here is that we want to pursue righteous, not, not the world's standards. Because it seems natural and normal that if you love me, I'm going to love you. If you're like me, I'm going to like you. But if you are those people, if you are wicked to me, if you're hateful to me, my natural response, my normal response, my fleshly response is to give what I've been getting. Are you guys like that? Just shake your head. I don't want to be alone on the island up here. And so Jesus says, don't, don't pursue the minimum standards. Don't, don't, don't pursue the world standards, what the world would say is okay. He says, even because he says, even the tax collectors are good to those who are good to them. The tax collectors were like the lowest of the low. They were the traitors. They traded their countrymen for money. And even those people, Jesus says, love those who love them. But a follower of Jesus, if we're going to be salty and if we're going to be bright, we're going to have to love those who don't look like us, who don't act like us, who maybe even persecute us. Why? Because that's what Jesus would do. So, again, Jesus is after our heart, but he gives us in verse 28. What does he, or verse number 20, what does he say? If your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be perfect. Then he goes to this list. If you've ever lied, if you've ever cheated, if you've ever been greedy, if you've ever lusted, if you've ever been angry, oh, guess what? You're not perfect. You're not going to heaven. And then he doubles down in verse number 48, and what does he say? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
But, but we keep saying, pursue righteousness, not wrath. Pursue righteousness, not worldly pleasures. Pursue righteousness, not... So what, is it, what does it actually mean to pursue righteousness? Because what these religious people were doing is their pursuit of righteousness was through religion. If I can just check the boxes, if I can go to church on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and show up a prayer meeting, if I can do these things, if I can be religious on the outside, that will make me righteous. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, here's the standard. If you've even thought something that was wrong, you can't get to heaven. In other words, religion does not lead to righteousness. So what does it mean to pursue righteousness? It simply means to pursue Jesus. It is his righteousness in me. So the Sermon on the Mount, this whole list of what Jesus is doubling down, he's raising the bar, he's doubling the ante here. You, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, it's not just about your outward actions, it's about your inward thoughts. And unless you live up to the standard, you can't enter into heaven. What Jesus is actually doing is Jesus is revealing to us that the law, what scripture said, is the schoolmaster, which leads us to understand we can't be good enough. The scripture says that my righteousness, your righteousness, is as filthy as filthy rags. Paul would describe it a little more coarse. He said that you could pile all his righteousness together and all of his good works, and it would be a heap of trash. And so it sounds a little depressing this morning. If you're not perfect, Jesus, you can't get to heaven. But remember what he said? Verse 17 and 18, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. What does that mean? It means that Jesus did come and he did live up to this standard. He did live a perfect life. And that's why when John saw Jesus walking, John the forerunner of Christ, remember what John said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and the good news of this sermon is that, yes, you can't be good enough to get to heaven, but Jesus was good enough for you. But see, religion says this is what you need to do, but Jesus says, I've already done that. So the heart of the matter here is God, Jesus is after our heart, not our habits. Jesus is after a relationship, not religion. So maybe today you've realized, you probably already knew it, that you are a sinner. You've thought a bad thought. You have not lived up to the standard. And according to what Jesus said twice in this passage, you can't get to heaven. But I love, what, I love what Paul wrote in Ephesians. But God, who is rich in his mercy, because of his great love toward us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, he, Jesus, made us alive together with Christ. You see, the gospel is pretty clear. I can't be good enough, and you can't be good enough. For by grace... You're saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of religion. Because if it's a religion, 
we would boast. And that's why when we read last week, Nathan said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because until I acknowledge that I can't be good enough to get to God, I'll never get to God. I have to acknowledge I am a sinner. We talk about the ABCs of salvation. First thing I have to do to get to God is admit that I'm not perfect. It'd be hard to sit through this message today and still think you're perfect. I have to admit I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. That's A. B, believe that Jesus died for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, you, if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love toward me, toward you, that even while you were a sinner, even though you couldn't live up to the standard, Christ died for us. I'm going to admit that I'm a sinner. I'm going to believe that Jesus died for me and see, I'm going to confess that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's his words, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father because no one can live up to the standard except through Jesus, the only one who did fulfill the law. Admit, believe, and confess. And I want to challenge you right, right now in this moment. If you've never done that, would you do it right now? I'm going to lead you through a prayer. You don't have to close your eyes. You can if you want. The prayer is very simple. It's, we're, I'm going to walk you through those three, the ABCs. And so you may say something like this, God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died in my place. I confess Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I ask you to forgive me, and I ask you to save me. And here's the good news. If you prayed that prayer and, and you meant that to God, he just adopted you into his family. And now when, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your righteousness. He sees the righteousness of Christ in you. Aren't you thankful for Christ? Now, I would say a big percentage of us in the room this morning, we, we've made a decision before to follow Christ, and we've prayed a prayer similar to that. So what's the application for us today as well? I, I want to read a passage of Scripture. I'm going to ask Marty and the praise team to come and prepare, because we're going to end the, the service in a song of worship this morning that's going to kind of lead us to this understanding of what Paul wrote in Galatians. It was in Galatians chapter number two. I'm going to read. It's going to be on the screen this morning because I'm reading from a, a paraphrase, the message translation, because I think it really articulates what we as followers. So what does it mean to pursue righteousness? It simply means to pursue Christ. That if, if I'm going to live up to any kind of quality of Christian life, I can't do it on my own. Because left to my own desires and my own flesh and my own weakness, I am going to mess up. If I am going to be what... God wants me to be. It has to be Christ in me. It has to be me pursuing Christ. As Christ, as I surrender more of my life to Christ, then he makes me more like him. And here's what Paul says, Galatians chapter number 2, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 21. Again, this is 
in the message translation. Paul says this, If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I'd be acting as a charlatan. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping the rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman, or I would say a religious man, so that I could be God's man, or I would say a relationship with God. Verse number 20, Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see, in, the life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going back on that. It is clear to you. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, I love this statement, to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relation with God. I refuse to do that. I refuse to repudiate God's grace. If a living relation with God could come, listen to this, this is an important statement. If a living relation with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. So what's the challenge for us as followers today? Is to pursue Christ. Let Christ dwell in us. And in the latter part of Galatians, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. As I pursue Christ, and he in me makes me more like Christ.